Welcome to Eagle-Eyed, a podcast from the Heights. I'm Alec Craney. Two weeks ago, at the end of a two-day election, Boston College's Graduate Student Union voted to establish collective bargaining with the university. It was the culmination of a multi-year effort for graduate employees to build a union capable of negotiating with the university. Hear from one student who was on the fence about the issue. And, moving forward, what this means for the future of the union. I spoke to a law professor about how unions have gotten to this point and their chances of success in the coming weeks, months, and years. It's Thursday, September 28th, 2017. Now to Columbia, the university. The National Labor Relations Board ruled last week that graduate students who work as teaching assistants at private universities like Columbia are employees who are entitled to the right to unionize. That was back in the fall of 2016, when on August 23rd, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, an independent federal agency tasked with protecting the rights of private sector employees, ruled that graduate students who are also teaching or research assistants at private universities are employees, not just students, and therefore entitled to unionize. Since then, graduate students at top universities across the country. Graduate students at Yale University filed for union representation elections in 10 departments. Princeton University's graduate students are taking first steps toward forming a union. The University of Pennsylvania, Harvard University, and I'm a graduate student in the Department of Statistics at the University of Michigan, have been pushing for their own unionization. Boston College is one of them. Here now is Connor Murphy, the news editor for The Heights, who has been covering the efforts of BC's graduate student union most closely since April. But this story starts even earlier. Yeah, it actually goes back to January 2015, more than a year and a half before the NLRB decision on Columbia came out. BC had taken away health insurance for students receiving master's degrees, and they did it in a pretty sudden way. They just sent an email to all the departments saying, from now on, students in these types of situations will no longer get health insurance. And that made a lot of grad students really angry. One of the things that came out of that was that they wanted to put together some sort of a unionization effort. Now, got to remember that at this time, private universities couldn't do that yet, really, officially, with the NLRB. And the Columbia decision changed that. Yeah, it took 18 months uh, until August of 2016. But once that decision came out, private universities could officially unionize and obtain collective bargaining rights with their administrations. What does BC's union do next? So you have to get 30% of eligible grad student workers to sign things called authorization cards. Those uh, enable the union to really register with the NLRB to hold an election. And in an election, you need 50% support for the union. They never really told us when they hit that 30% mark that would make them eligible. They sort of said yeah, we have the support. Uh, At one point, somebody told us well before they had filed to the NLRB that they actually had over 50% support for holding the election. They were sort of dodgy about that. And which graduate students are part of that voting body? Yeah, so that applies to TAs, uh, 
RAs, research assistants, just general employees or graduate students. Uh, mostly it applies to TAs and RAs, though. Actually, when the NLRB ruled in May that BC's grad student workers could hold an election, they exempted students in the theology department in the School of Theology and Ministry because BC had argued that the religious exemption prevented them from being able to vote in the election. Fast forward to April when you're really starting to pick up on this coverage yourself. What is happening at that time? At that point, the union had filed for the election with the NLRB, and they were starting to, they were exploring holding the election actually in the spring semester. But because they had to have these lengthy hearings with BC and lawyers and the NLRB to uh, determine whether the NLRB would allow them to have the election at all, they ended up not being able to hold it last year. But they do get the election this fall. So the NLRB ruled toward the end of May that they could hold the election, and then it was scheduled for September 12th and 13th. And the university is not happy about this. All universities, so far as I know, hold the belief that grad student employees are students first, employees second. So BC tries to stop the election from even happening. Right. Several universities have done this. BC is hardly the first. But at the end of August, almost three months after the NLRB had ruled that they could hold an election, BC decided to file an appeal with uh, the national branch of the NLRB in D.C., uh, asking them to delay the election until they had reviewed their original decision in granting the vote. Uh, the NLRB took about two and a half, three weeks to respond to that, and actually on September 11th, the day before the voting was to start, they rejected BC's appeal. Which meant that the union could hold its election. Right. The NLRB sort of ruled at the last minute. If they hadn't ruled at all, then BC's appeal would have been moot, but they did strike it down two to one. And the election happens. And what's the result? The result is 270 in favor and 224 against. That was much closer, I personally thought, than it was going to be. And from what several members of the union said, it, it appeared to be closer, more of a nail-biter than they anticipated. And that's out of more than 700 graduate students eligible to vote? Yeah, there 778 eligible students. They ended up with about 65% participation. What does that close vote mean potentially for the union heading forward? It means that they could have pretty significant opposition in general uh, going forward. The union is going to have to now elect a bargaining committee, which they hope to do this semester. And when they hold elections for that, they it depends how they decide to allocate the positions, but they could have one representative from each school be on the committee. If they have more than one person in each school running for that spot, they could end up having inter-school elections, which would mean that a pretty significant block of students who appear to be opposed to the union could, in theory, elect somebody to the bargaining committee who is also opposed to the union. And therefore, personally, I think, could end up putting a bit of a dent in the UAW organizers' plans. And the next step then, before they actually get to the bargaining, is figuring out what they want to bargain for. 
Yeah. So while they're trying to establish the committee and going through that whole process, at the same time, they'll be sending out these things called bargaining surveys to all eligible grad student employees. Those are going to ask the grad students what their priorities are for bargaining. So if all grad students or a majority say that they want to focus on higher stipends or on getting dental insurance, that'll be the priority going forward in this round of bargaining for the committee. Hey, Connor, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. As TAs, the stipend that we get is just about enough that you can live in Boston on, you know, literally the most bare minimum that you possibly can and and come out relatively even. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't take into account people who have uh, children, uh, prior debt, right? Anything like that, mm-hmm. and so that was my big mm-hmm. um, issue that I turned on. That's Colin Notice McCartney, a teaching assistant for the history department. My colleague DJ Reckney spoke with him about his stance on the union. I never understood why there wasn't like a, just a debate about it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, hey, let's get everybody together and, and talk about it. And the way that it was expressed with counter arguments not going to the president until Friday was very. Um, or until late last week was very strange. I had already been making my own counterarguments, so I didn't really right. need to hear other ones, and it already kind of come up with my decision, but I think a lot of people weren't having that same internal debate over the two years, and then just got hammered in the last few days with stuff and had to make their decision. To get a more full background and history on this issue, because don't get me wrong, it's a complicated one, I spoke to Michael Harper, a professor of law at Boston University, who is a leading authority in the areas of labor law and employment law. I began by essentially asking him what's going on in this big picture across the country. And our conversation was about grad student unionization in general. He hasn't been following the Boston College case specifically. What's going on is that we had a presidential election last year, as you may have noticed, and um, the uh, Democratic president was replaced by a Republican president. And uh, the president gets to choose members of the labor board. Uh, It's an executive agency, and he chooses uh, members of the board. And um, when a Republican, this has certainly been true for 40 years or 35 years, um, when a Republican chooses, they choose people that are sympathetic to employers. When a Democratic chooses a majority, they choose uh, sympathetic to unions. Uh, it's one of the clear differences. It doesn't make any difference. Not just because of Trump, but it doesn't make any difference. Any other Republicans been the same thing. Uh, and the labor board has discretion under the law uh, um, on on a number of um, doctrinal issues. And um, the board has been going back and forth on whether uh, graduate students, depending upon whether it's a Democratic uh, uh, president-appointed board or Republican president-appointed board, the board has been going back and forth on whether graduate students are uh, employees. 
um, covered by the act. <clears throat> if they're not, uh, then there's no duty to bargain. And um, the uh, the Columbia first the Clinton, I mean the Clinton board um, uh, had held that they were, and then the Bush board held that they weren't, and the Obama board finally, right at the end of uh, toward the really close to the end of Obama's presidency in the Columbia case, went back to the Clinton board's position and held that they were employees. Now, um, there is, I, I'm sure these university uh, ad, administrations uh, who, um, who, do, who don't want to bargain with the graduate students, uh, I'm in Columbia and at BC and at George Washington and BU, every other school, will uh, hope that um, the Trump labor board, Trump appointed labor board, will revert to the Bush's board position that these graduate students are not employees, that they're students and should not be treated as employees. And if that's the case, that's the end of it. So if that decision were to be reversed, what does it possibly mean for these schools that have passed this union election but haven't necessarily co had a collective bargaining agreement yet? They will probably, you know, stop bargaining. Uh, if they do have a collective bargaining agreement, um, uh, I mean, they could bargain voluntarily, uh, but they're under no legal compulsion to bargain. And I don't think most schools will. But if there's no collective bargaining agreement and the school has resisted it, which, you know, most schools do and have. Yes. Um, I, I assume BC did. They did. And so they, they just won't bargain. They'll say, sorry, guys, we have no obligation. So that's what I, my guess is that any school like BC or GW, uh, who's who the UAW or some other union has just organized their graduate students, and they're they're going to um, they're going to drag their feet uh, and not bargain uh, until they get word that uh, this um, uh, the uh, new board, the Trump board, um, uh, has not reversed what the Obama board did. That's my prediction. Yeah, so it's kind of sounding to me like the schools can pretty much delay or drag this out almost as long as they need to. At some point, they can get under a court order uh, that, you know, that to enforce it's an unfair. If, if and they can't just wait, well, you know, sooner or later, there'll be a board or they'll reverse it. They, if... Um, uh, if the, let's say it's Columbia, which is maybe go first through the chute here. And if the board says, no, we're not going to reverse it. Uh, you have a duty to bargain. Uh, they will then, um, you know, there'll be an order for, for them to bargain. And if they don't bargain at that point, they could be, they could be in, you know, that could be enforced by a court and it could be, they could be in contempt. So, um, yeah, they they can't just drag it out uh, forever, but they can drag it out long enough to find out at the Trump board, uh, which has been, uh, you know, reconstituted. There's a Republican majority 
uh, on the board now. So they 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 um, uh, they can drag it out long enough to get the word from the from a Republican majority board. So at this point, with the Republican majority coming into practice and the universities able to hold out maybe for that long of a period, what is maybe the best case scenario for these unions right now? What could they be hoping for? Today, the uh, Trump board will uh, say, okay, we've got you know, other things are going to reverse on the Obama board, and we won't reverse this one. Uh, we'll we'll get some stability to the law, uh, the law here, and and won't reverse it. Um, you know, we'll throw the unions a bone on this. Yeah. So on most sides, pretty much just a waiting game to see what the NLRB will rule on. Yes, I think so. Eagle-Eyed is produced by DJ Reckney, Taylor St. Germain, and myself. Francisco Ruela is our post-production supervisor. Our show art is by Zoe Fanning. Our theme music is by Andrew Hammond, a music producer here on campus. For the articles or more background information behind these stories, or more general info about the show, visit bcheights.com backslash podcasts. That's it for Eagle-Eyed. I'm Alec Graney. See you next week.